welcome to Baptist Perspective with Jimmy Barber. Whether you're listening while driving home from work, sitting with a hot cup of coffee, or making dinner, we hope this podcast will be thought-provoking and edifying. Now, here with today's episode is Jimmy Barber. In previous podcasts, we quoted William Stiles, a strict and particular Baptist in England, wherein he stated first, faith is to be regarded as a principle that is imparted by the Holy Spirit to every regenerated person. And secondly, it is an act which arises from the existence of this principle and which characterizes the true children of God. On the other hand, men like Albert Barnes denied that faith is a principle. In short, he said, Faith is always an act of the mind. It is not a created essence which is placed within the mind. It is not a substance created independently of the soul and placed within it by almighty power. It is not a principle. For the expression, a principle of faith, is as unmeaning as a principle of joy, or a principle of sorrow, or a principle of remorse. God promises, man believes, and this is the whole of it. End of quote. Note that he said that faith is not a created essence placed within the mind. It is not a substance created and placed within the soul by Almighty Power. However, Ephesians 2.8 plainly says that faith is the gift of God, that is, the gift of the Almighty Power of God. Barnes said that faith is always an act of the mind. God promises, the man believes, and this is the whole of it. Galatians 5.22 says that faith is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Furthermore, we quoted Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, William Newell, A.T. Robertson, and Robert Hawker from their, their comments on Romans 3.27, whereby they declared that faith is a principle. Many other men could be quoted showing that they too maintain that faith is a principle or law, but as stated in our previous podcast, we will quote from the writings of Israel Atkinson, an English Baptist, concerning the distinction between the law or principle of work and the law or principle of faith. He wrote rather extensively of this, and we can only supply a sample from pages 10 through 15 of his rich book entitled Faith as Printed, in 1777. I apologize for the length of this quote, but I believe it is essential to aid in better understanding the difference between the two laws or principles and that our justification is a free gift from God without any condition on the part of man and that this free gift is the person and work of Christ. Quoting Atkinson, Paul treating of the justification of a sinner by the righteousness of God without the law says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Romans 3.27 
Here two laws are spoken of in direct and precise terms, and it may be observed that according to one or the other of these laws, every known relation existing between the Creator and the creature or the divine sovereign and the subject has been established, and that according to one or the other of these, all affairs between a man and his maker in every connection between them are conducted. Between God and man, there exists no third law of living. If then these laws embrace matters of so high consideration, it will be obvious that to understand their nature and to know in what provinces they are in force are sciences of which no man ought to be ignorant and in which the interpreter of scripture and teacher of religion especially should be thoroughly instructed. Moreover, it should be observed that these two laws bear their designation in no figurative sense. Indeed, so far as we know, the term law of works has received no figurative interpretation. Yet it is very questionable whether generally its meaning is correctly understood. But the term law of faith has presented some difficulty to interpreters, and there is a considerable divergence of opinion about its meaning. Some seem to fix on belief as the sense to be understood and explain the word law as catechesis, that is, the use of a word in a way that is not correct, employed in allusion to the law of works. Others prefer the doctrine of the gospel, but faith in this term is to be understood neither as the act of believing nor the doctrine of the gospel, but simply as it is put a law. Paul is speaking of boasting being excluded in reference to a doctrine of the gospel by some law. Boasting is not excluded according to what he here teaches concerning this doctrine by the whole system considered as doctrine, of which it forms a part, but by a certain law, the law of faith, which, while permeating all the doctrines of the gospel, is distinct from them. Alfred, expounding the place with a rare and refreshing discrimination, says, quote, by what law is it excluded? Is it by that of works? No, but it is by the law or the rule of faith. The contrast is not between the law and the gospel as two dispensations, but between the law of works and the law of faith, whether found under the law or gospel, or, if the case admitted, anywhere else. End of quote by Alfred. These two laws are wholly diverse from and irreconcilable antagonistic to each other, wherein soever one is in force, the other is utterly excluded. One person may be under both these laws in different respects at the same time, but he cannot be under the authority and guidance of both in relation to the same object. Neither of these laws stands for any particular code. Each of them embodies and represents a distinguished principle. 
Between God and man, the law of works will be the principle according to which the duty of the creature to the creator or of the subject to the sovereign is to be discharged. On this matter, the minds of men seem much confused. Many appear to have no other notion of the law of works than that it is the law of Ten Commandments recorded in the 20th chapter of Exodus. It should be understood, if the repetition may be pardoned, that the law of works is not a commandment, nor a code of commandments, which determines a duty, but the principle according to which the precepts and prohibitions enjoined are to be kept. That principle is that a due is owed by the subject to the sovereign, that this due is to be rendered by the discharge of a definite duty, and that when this is performed, a work is done by which economically a title is acquired to a reward of debt. The nature of this law is precisely interpreted by the words of the Lord Jesus to the lawyer, This do, and thou shalt live. Luke ten twenty seven. The law of faith, as this is established between the divine sovereign and his subject, is just the principle according to which absolute favor is extended by the Lord of all, and is received by his servants, and this will be the mode of living in every relation of grace which may ever exist between them. It simply represents and embodies itself the principle of giving and receiving, in every case of a due from the giver and a duty from the receiver. This order of things cannot be obtained, for, so to speak, were the gift a due, it would cease to be a gift, for it would be wanting of the requisite freeness to make it one, and were the receiving a duty, it would in like manner no longer be a free receiving. Therefore this law can have no place and cannot be the mode of living between God and man about any matter in any economy wherein the sovereign claims a right and the subject discharges a duty in obedience to a demand made on him in every economy in which the law of faith is enforced. There will be, indeed, divine claims advanced and enforced and consequently duties to be discharged, but not in respect to the favors given and received according to this law. Anything about which God claims a right, and man acknowledges a due, and for which man discharges a duty, and God accepts an obedience, can never find a place under this order of things. Nothing but absolute favor, freely giving and freely receiving, can be known here. Whatever may be required economically, on the one hand in order to the giving, and on the other in order to the realization and enjoyment of anything given under the law of faith, grace must provide. Nothing can be suspended on any legal condition to be found in or on any duty to be performed by the person to be advantaged 
by the establishment of this law of living between them and God. Under this law, there is no promise of reward of obedience, nor threatening of penalty for disobedience. If a duty were imposed and a reward were promised to obedience and a penalty threatened to disobedience, dutifulness must be vindicated and rewarded as a matter of right, and undutifulness must be condemned and punished as a matter of justice. But then, as must be evident, these are conditions that in their very nature are wholly opposed to and utterly inconsistent with the law of faith. Can any man want the perspicacity, that is, shrewdness, to see that whereinsoever a legal right is claimed, and a due is acknowledged, and a duty is performed, and an obedience is accepted in order to the enjoyment of any good, that is, such as faith exercised as a means for justification, that not the law of faith, but the law of works is in force. Can any man fail to see that wherein the discharge of a duty is all a factor of enjoyment of any blessing, that this is a condition which must, in the very nature of things, wholly exclude grace and faith? Yet axiomatic as the proposition is, that duty and faith respecting the same object exclude each other. Few persons seems to apprehend this simple truth. Should this truth come to be universally understood, a veritable revolution in theological teaching and ministerial utterance must be the result to an almost equal extent but the change would be a real reformation. May it come. In sum, then, the law of works will be the moving principle or mode of living in some relation subsisting between God and man. The relation may be a natural one as between the creator and the creature, or it may be an economical one as between the sovereign and the subject. But whatever the relation may be wherein the law of works obtained, the essential element of this government governing principle will be a right claim on God's part according to plain precept, and a due acknowledged on man's. In the event of a due obedience being rendered, a title to vindication and acceptance will be acquired, and in the case of disobedience, a penalty of condemnation and punishment will be deserved. On the other hand, the law of faith will be the governing principle established in some connection subsisting between the sovereign and the subject that originated and is continued from pure favor. All the advantages arising out of this relation will be free gifts and every belonging thereunto will bear on it the impress of grace. While, on the one hand, the law of works knows of no grace, on the other, the law of faith knows nothing else. While under that a claim is made, under this a promise is given. 
while where that holds sway a duty is to be done, where this obtains a gift is to be accepted, while under that a dutiful subject will be vindicated, under this a transgressor will be justified, while under the former disobedience will be punished, under the latter there is no precept to keep or to break, all being pure promise and grace, and therefore no vindication and acceptance is to be looked for on the grounds of dutifulness, and no condemnation and punishment to be dreaded for disobedience. That is the conclusion of the quote from Israel Atkinson. Please allow me to say again that justification by faith is simply being justified by the sovereign grace of God as worked out in the person and work of Christ. Our time has come to an end for today. Farewell. Thank you for listening to today's edition of Baptist Perspective. We archive our episodes so you can go back anytime and listen again. Do you have a question about something you've heard? or just want to let us know you're listening, visit us at baptistperspective.wordpress.com. That's baptistperspective.wordpress.com. Thanks again for listening.